goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to one more episode of the Data Transformers podcast. And today, for the first time, we are bringing in a guest who has uh, traversed multiple different areas, both geographies as well as the domains. So Tom Andriola, he's the vice chancellor of uh, information technology and data. And he's also the chief digital officer at UCI, UC Irvine and UCI Health. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Uh, wonderful to be here today. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. So, Tom, let's get started with uh, you've been appointed as a vice chancellor in October 2019, and uh, you are responsible for not just the information technology for the Irvine itself, you're also responsible for the, the health side of UCI as well. So, if you could talk to us, and then after 2019, suddenly pandemic happened in March 2020. So, literally, you had probably less than six months to prepare for what was going to happen, both from a health side, the academic side, let's get started with the health side. So what happened? Yeah, so, so let, let's talk about why uh, the role was created. And I, luckily, I feel fortunate that I had a hand in creating the role. And you know, the role is really about being responsible for the effective and strategic use of data and information technology across all aspects of UC Irvine, as you mentioned the academic mission, the research mission, the patient care mission. And, uh, you know, uh, my chancellor likes to say to me, he said, so basically your role is, is that everything we do should be different by 2025. And we should be uniquely different as an institution by 2030. So that's a great framing. And then as you just said, Ramesh, six months into the job, less than six months into the job, this thing called the COVID pandemic hit. And it just seemed like the timelines changed dramatically for me. All of a sudden, every conversation that was difficult and you had to push uphill had to happen by the end of the month, right? And so if we jump into the healthcare world, you think about the environment, we had the surge of very sick patients coming into us. We had uh, an, uh, a lack of ability to see them in the emergency room because of getting overwhelmed. The number of beds that we had all of a sudden uh, started to uh, not, you know, that was being sucked up very, very quickly. And we didn't know how high these, these surges were going to go. So we had to really think um, very quickly and very strategically about, well, I want to say very, very tactically about how could technology help us scale our operation. And so that was everything from things that people would normally come into the clinic for because we didn't want them there because we didn't know how this thing was spreading. Yep. We started doing more, we just call them virtual visits where doctors and patients were talking over a technology like Zoom. Uh, we started to really think about how could patients who would normally come in, now we could somehow take care of them at home. How could we check in with them with remote monitoring capabilities at home? And then that just evolved very quickly to conversations we were starting to have to how fast could we get something like this in place? And so some of the most advanced things had to do with now, uh, for example, using the data we had on our COVID positive patients, pulling that in, building predictive algorithms to understand 
you know, what was the probability of a patient heading to the ICU and maybe putting them on a different triage path than a patient who looked like they had characteristics that would be less severe against the model? How could we think about certain types of patients get some of these emergency use authorization um, treatments, infusion treatments that uh, you may have read about? How, how do you identify the patients that are the best uh, candidates for them? And then how do you put them on a path where they ultimately actually don't even take up a hospital bed? You can treat them in an outpatient facility, send them home with an SpO2 monitor uh, and basically allow them to recover in the comfort of their home and save a bed for a really, really sick patient, right? That ultimately then evolved into talking about, hey, the concept of a hospital bed, you know, being in a building on our campus is changing. And so the hospital at home initiative, which is, you know, that term is now becoming much more prevalent in our, you know, in our healthcare industry, we're now thinking about, you know, a hospital room can be in our building, or it also could be a converted room in a patient's home, where a combination of equipment that usually is only in the hospital is in their home, the um, monitoring is connected back to our facilities and our doctors, monitored by algorithms that actually help us uh, predict adverse events before they happen and being able to send our medical professionals into the home for certain types of things. So if you have to draw blood, right, or, or they need some type of infusion, obviously you can't do that virtually. You have to send someone in, but it turns us back into home-based visits. So, and this is now just not a pandemic thing. This is part of our healthcare strategy for UCI Health to us, allow us to basically be a different healthcare organization than we've been in the past. So it's diversifying us and making us more competitive and allowing us, allowing us to expand the number of patients that we can see. It'll happen in a couple of months. That's what the amazing thing is. It's like this will take five years and we've done it in less than 12 months. It's just been an amazing, you know, accelerated journey. Exactly. And I think we hear that a lot. The COVID pandemic has really accelerated, but just going back to, um, you said you actually helped design this position and role. What were your initial goals and plans? And do you think this is what you ultimately designed to do or the pandemic just accelerated a lot of your, your milestones by you know 12 to 18 months? Yeah, Peggy, great question. So I, in some ways it, it, it did accelerate conversations. I knew that we needed to be thinking, you know, we need to be having it. And I think uh, conversations got started maybe a little bit earlier. Implementations definitely got uh, started earlier because of the pandemic. And again, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, chief digital officer gets attached to the role is because people understand that term as that's the person responsible for facilitating and maybe driving digital transformation for the organization. And that's essentially what these set of conversations and initiatives have become. It's become our form of digital transformation for you know, the different uh, pillars of UCI. Apart from the health side, digital health, the remote, by the way, it was very interesting. The first time I heard about the, you know, home hospital concept. So if I equate that to a remote working, right? So people now can, you know, make your work as an extension office seems like that. Yes. But going to the other side of your world, uh, the academic side of the world, and suddenly march onwards, no students in, in the campuses, it's a distance learning. And uh, some institutions were ready for it and some institutions were not ready for it. And by the way, I read your one year uh, blog article about wants and needs, right? Mm -hmm. So as the pandemic hit. So could you relate to us, what, do, what did the COVID, the pandemic mean from an education perspective as well? 
Yeah, I, I think it, it thrust us. So it thrust us into a world that we had been dipping our toe in the water. And again, when you think of an institution like UCI, you know, and our you know, 2000 faculty members, it, it's not one body, right? It's really 2000 unique individuals, some who are more comfortable with technology and some who are less. And so those on the leading edge were already doing some of the things that became uh, how everyone had to work in the pandemic. But there were still a large percentage of our faculty who did not have a lot of experience with the type of you know, technologies that we had to use. And, but essentially, as you said, once the pandemic hit and once we sent all the students home and we committed to help them maintain their educational journey, then basically remote instruction, we don't call it online education, we called it remote instruction. Mm. We had to convert to that model. What uh, and, and that there was just no other option, right? Now what's happening as we start to look at post-pandemic, we are now stepping back and being more strategic about it and saying, you know, in, in a world where our, a majority of our students are digital natives who are used to interacting and have some really trusted uh, brand relationships through organizations they've never met a single employee of, mm. we have to enable a world that speaks to that, that model first, uh, you know, as well as the traditional model of people thinking of higher education, of going into a lecture hall and sitting there, because our students expect multiple modes to be able to interact with them, and they expect choice. As much as we may not like that, if we put the consumer, in this case, the education consumer, who we sometimes might call a student, in the center of the equation, their choice is going to drive how we need to operate. And again, the pandemic has, has driven that, kind of forced us forward. Now we're starting to talk about how does that, how do we encapsulate that into how we uh, run the university going forward? Uh, it's certainly, you know, we call it, you know, a kind of hybrid instruction now is what we're mm -hmm. calling it, right? Uh, some people might call it dual mode, but it's called hybrid instruction because there's a digital and an in-person mode, yeah. but also all the services, the non-educational uh, or non-instructional things uh, students do, there have to be di digital modes of that as well, which is why go stand in line at, at, at financial aid when you could schedule appointment for 1130 and do a, a virtual concept consult with the financial aid person uh, from the comfort of your of your hotel room. Uh, it doesn't really play well in Southern California where you don't mind walking outside from building to building, but there are climates where, you know, it is really not, no fun to walk in March yeah. across campus to, to go see someone in the administration. But, you know, I think it's an example of that we've been pushed and I think will forever be changed on the other side. Um, you know, we won't, you know, we'll never be uh, University of Phoenix. I mean, there's still a very important in-person component, get to the lab, student research opportunity to work with faculty members that's enriching. That's part of the research university component. Mm -hmm. But there's this hybrid mode, I think, is with us to stay. Um, Tom, I was uh, looking at some of the things you um, written about you and Certainly one key word that struck out was the fact that you're a big proponent of innovation. And as the, you know, chief digital officer, um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious uh, where you think innovation can be um, driven or executed on, especially it, when you're talking about research and academics and, and healthcare. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Peggy, so some of that comes from the different types of experiences had, I've had over the course of my career. So I've been fortunate to had almost like multiple professional lives. I've been the internal functional executive, somewhat like the role I'm playing now, 
I've also been the general manager of software and technology businesses where, you know, it's like the CEO of the business and had to think like a business executive and then looked at technology as an enabling function. And so those diverse perspectives, you know, give me a somewhat different way of thinking about innovation. Um, I tend to throw it into two buckets. There's the incremental innovation, which is the continuous improvement mindset. How do you get a little bit better? How do you improve the margins? How do you move the needle on your customer satisfaction? And then there's the, the kind of the disruptive transformational innovation, which is break the rules. I had a great a CEO I, I worked for when I was at Philips. And I used to complain at times about how tough my competition was. My competition was General Electric, Siemens, McKesson, really, really big, large global companies. Right. And she used to say to me, Tom, when you can't win the game, change the rules. And it was her way of in, in saying to me, I need to get outside of the box in terms of how we're thinking about you know, the way the playing field work and figure out how to change the rules that bend to the strengths of, of my team and my product line. And so I think that way, even when I'm an internal executive, which is, you know, uh, if UCI is going to be a different organization by 2030, what rules do we need to change in the way that we generate the student experience, in the way that we prepare students to go enter the workforce, in the way that we attract uh, international students to come and get their graduates and PhD degrees from us, in the way that we get NIH or NSF to give us grant money or the Gates Foundation? How do we create competitive advantage for ourselves? And that is the, that question leads then to what's the innovation that will give us the kind of the upper edge, right, uh, in, in that equation. So Tom, one of the things that I noticed in your um, title, they didn't just say Vice Chancellor Information and Technology. They said Vice Chancellor Information Technology, comma data, right? I mean, it's a, the whole the concept of a chief data officer, even chief digital officer, these are all new things, right? And you've gone from a Philips uh, so corporate world, and then you were also CIO of the UC system as well before you even took the position of the UC or Right. So the question to you is this, we focus a lot on data on this podcast, and we dig into data analytics and what does it mean in different contexts, right? So the question to you, is the data analytics, right? You have seen it both from trying to make decisions based on data in your Philips in the corporate world as a, you know, a CEO of the software companies that you're managing. And then you were also establishing a blueprint for the entire UC system as a CIO dealing with you know, multiple hospitals, multiple institutions across the UC system. And now as a functional executive of UC Irvine itself, right? Having to deal with and UC Irvine's own health initiative and then the students and faculty. So data analytics, what are the contrasting points between, first let's talk about what does the data analytics mean in your current role number one, and what is the contrasting uh, opinion about what it was in the corporate world? Yeah, so uh, again, you always look back at what, could, what would you have changed so uh, I would have changed, it would have been the vice chancellor for data and information technology. I would have okay. put data in front. <laughs> and so when they said, well, what, you know, they set up my office, you have to have an office when you're at an you know, educational institution. I said, well, it's the office of data and information technology. So it was a learning, um, it was a learning opportunity that, that I put the cart before the horse. And because if I think about what I learned through my experiences running software companies, uh, I was part of Philips Healthcare, and I was there in the transformation when I realized that doctors actually generated value from the images, mm. which were ultimately a bunch of zeros and ones. If you talk about an MRI image, yeah. 
Um, and the world was changing because the price point on the MRI scanner was dropping 30% year over year. It, the business became like CD players. Mm. Uh, and the value and the ability to keep your customer was around the quality of the image, the speed in which the image was available for reading. And, and so I remember that. And so when I start thinking about, you know, this new world that we're in, what people really value is the data. Mm. The device is really the, you know, the, the physical thing, the technology is just the, the data generation engine. Doing something interesting with the data is the value proposition. And so in my role, running the Office for Data Information Technology, we have developed this concept of data as a strategy. Data is not just an asset. Data is not just a facilitator of an ecosystem. It's a strategy. It's a strategy for us to make better decisions inside the organization. It's a better opportunity for us to connect with our core stakeholders. It's also you know, the mechanism by which we drive interdisciplinary science. We have this concept we call the collaboratory. The mm. collaboratory is essentially, it's a data platform where we fuse together data sets that usually don't get combined. We bring subject matter experts from different disciplines for inter interdisciplinary problem solving. And then we essentially partner with external organizations. Those could be the pharma industry, the medical device industry, the, the foundations that care about student outcomes and achievement gaps. And we essentially build this ecosystem of interested players to use data to solve thorny problems. And that's the concept of the collaboratory. We launched the first one in health and wellness. The second one is being launched this year. Uh, call it's, We don't have a name yet, but it's the collaboratory around student success. And it's really facilitating data as a strategy to export the value of what we as an institution can do between one, the data assets that we have or that we can help people create and combine, and then using the incredibly smart people in different uh, subject areas to attack that problem. And so, you know, we've created this whole engine for how to free the data and how to get really smart people to work with the data. And those boundaries don't end at UCI. We do that within industry. I actually want to start doing citizen science with these data sets. Hmm. It's just a matter of being, what have I not gotten to yet? It's concepts like that that are still coming for me. That's really great to hear, um, Tom, because I also come from a data background and I also was going to ask you um, yourself if it was more, if your role was more tech driven or data driven, but data as a strategy answer, answered my question. Um, but thinking about the data and measuring data against your progress and your role, I mean, I'm thinking more internally, what type of KPIs or metrics are, are you holding yourself accountable to and demonstrating to the chancellor or you know to the school boards as, as to your progress? I'm, I'm curious what those type of metrics look like. Yeah, so uh, they're, they're not hard dollars and cents, right? I mean, they're much more impact-driven metrics. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you some that he gets very excited about with me. So uh, when we launched the, uh, the Collaboratory for Health and Wellness and we started taking data sets, de-identified data sets with patients with COVID, for example, and we made that available. We invited every faculty member from every school at UCI, which is 15 schools, right? So these are, you know, the social scientists were invited, the physical sciences, the arts, the humanities, as well as the schools of medicine and nursing and pharmacy. And so the fact that we had over 150 people show up to the workshop representing 13 different schools 
was one of those impact things because he says we're using data you know in a way that's very impactful and we're not limiting ourselves that because this is a health related data set only health related professionals can look at it mm -hmm. of course what he said to me he goes well what happened with the other two schools right i mean he <laughs> focused on the two schools that didn't show up and, and i just said we need to work on the mechanism of, of getting the message to them and and um, showing them that, that this is, you know, anyone can work with data and we want it to be a very interdisciplinary process. So there's one example. Uh, the second is, is, you know, our relationships with industry, which you can talk about in terms of the number of partnerships that we've expanded to, or the number of industry sponsored research engagements that we've got coming in, uh, even the growth of our clinical trials practice. So those are all things that you can measure in terms of, you know, quantities and dollars, for example. Um, I, I think when we get to the student outcome one, I think that's going to be very interesting because I think there's a set of metrics that are kind of accepted, things like four-year and six-year graduation rate, you know, diversifying the, the graduation rates by the different ethnic groups or different socioeconomic groups. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more depth of those, to those metrics once we start combining new data sets together that haven't been looked at before. I think we'll start to develop. And I think that's part of the interesting thing about data is as you fuse different types of data sets together and analyze them through these advanced techniques, and we have a great school of information and computer science and some great deep data science and machine learning expertise, you start to find new insights. And to me, what's really cool is when you find a different type of insight and you define a different type of metric going forward. Um, let me give you a simple example that we've been, well, I'll give you two examples in education that we've been kicking around. Mm -hmm. uh, one is if you think about, uh, today in the way that higher education works for all its greatness because we have the best system in, in the us of anywhere in the world we still only send out our graduates with a piece of paper uh which you know the value of the brand with that piece of paper means something and a gpa that's what we send them away with hmm. what if we also sent them away with with a rubric based you know competency model for here are 15 competencies that we know most employers are looking for from graduates from universities today and how they've scored over time over their four years in mastering those competencies mm -hmm. right the data is out there for us to be able to assess that you know what we have to get to is accepted models and consistency across the different types of courses we take but what if a graduate in 2025 walked out with you know, here's my degree from UCI, here's my GPA, and here are 10 competencies rated on a scale of one to 10 that I've mastered and has is part of our accreditation as a university. How much more valuable would that be to an employer? Would that be more valuable than, let's say, a graduate coming from another university, uh, maybe even starting with the letters UC, yeah. who just had the standard model? Does it start to differentiate your graduates from others? That's what I'm around to ask, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first example. Yep. The second one was a challenge question. So we all know what a Fitbit is. We all know what a Fitbit does for those who are interested in their health. What would an educational Fitbit look like? Hmm. Think about it, right? We care about achievement. We care about goal setting, ambitions, alignment, the right behaviors. What would an educational Fitbit look like? And how do we engage our students to help design it? Somebody will, and someone's gonna make a boatload of money why shouldn't an idea like that come out of the academy to begin with? So we kind of put that out there as a challenge question that we're kicking around. And people are just kind of scratching their head going, boy, that's an interesting question. Definitely. But, 
That's a great idea. I mean, both of them are just uh, the rubric is it's, it's your resume expanded beyond the GPA, you know, kind of stuff. Right. So communication skills, like I'm just throwing something out there. So now, uh, an organization would definitely would like to see how yeah. those student has progressed. About it, you know, again, you know, great organizations ultimately understand how to create points of differentiation and how to maintain those points of differentiation. You know, even though academic institutions don't always necessarily think in terms of dollars and cents or at the bottom line, we do think in terms of impact and success. And so part of what, you know, my role, given that technology and data are driving most of the change that organizations are going through is think about how do we create our new points of differentiation looking down the road? And so I, I feel like, you know, I got a great job because I get to come ask those type of questions every day and then figure out the harder parts, figuring out how to make it happen. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.